of us who haven't been with us before, for those of us who are new, or for those who weren't here last week, we have started a new book on Galatians, the letter of Galatians. And we're right at the start of this series, and we're going to be unpacking what Galatians means in more and more detail as we go through each and every week. But before we do that, it's really important that we just understand the context of this book. So I'm just going to go back and just give you a little bit of background information. It was a letter written by Paul to the churches in Galatia. Galatia covered covered a large area, including parts of Turkey. And it was one of a number of letters that Paul wrote in the Bible. And the purpose, the aim of Galatians, is to point to Jesus. It's to show what he has done, to highlight how he has saved us, and to reassure the Galatian church, which we'll look at in a bit more detail. So our verse today is in 1 Galatians, and it's 1 Galatians 6 to 12. So if you'd like to find that, that's 1 Galatians 6 to 12. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For I am now seeking, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Amen. For those who know me, some of you don't know me, I love doing a bit of DIY. That's not always been my passion, I must say. It's only since we've got our own house. I quite love doing DIY. And recently, we've had a lot of work done on our house. We've had an extension put on and some other work, work done as well. And when they fixed one of the walls, quite a few patches in there, some bits had fallen off. Um, so I took it upon myself to put my DIY hat on and try and fix it. So I got the polyfiller out, got my sanding machine out, got my painting out, painted it. And I'm a bit of a perfectionist. So I made sure I took my time, I took effort, I took care to make sure that it was gorgeous. And it was, it was stunning, it was stunning. And um, after I'd finished, I went back the next day, did a second coat of paint just to check and make sure that it was looking fine. And for the next three or four days after, I'd walk past that wall every day and just check, is it still looking all right? Put a bit of pride in there. Um, I was you know, quite, quite impressed with it. And then one morning I came downstairs and as I walked past, I looked at my wall and my wall was different. No longer was it my perfectly beautiful wall that was smooth and soft and polished and, uh, and white. There was blue pen. There wasn't just a bit of blue pen. There was blue pen everywhere. <laughs> children, children. It was everywhere. The wall was covered. The wall wasn't how I'd left it. The wall wasn't the canvas that I'd originally left. White, pure, clean. And we have something here happening in Galatians. Paul would storm into cities that were like a blank canvas, declare the gospel, see thousands saved, and then move on, leaving his trusted servants such as Timothy, Titus, to see structure come to the churches, to oversee these new churches. And he would often write to his churches after receiving feedback on how they were getting on. And we see a number of these letters throughout the New Testament. 
And this is exactly the purpose behind Galatians. And it's very important, sorry, that we understand why Paul wrote these letters. They weren't arrogant. They weren't an ego boost. They were born out of a real love for these people that got saved, for the churches that were springing up. They were born out of a care for his people who were saved. He didn't simply just lead them to Christ and abandon them or move on. We see examples of this in 1 Thessalonians 2, of his aftercare. It says, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. It's really important that we understand this. As Paul, the, the heart sorry, behind Paul's letters, they're not pious, condescending, they're not written out of pride, but rather a compassion, a love for his churches. I love it. We see examples of this in some of his other letters that he's written. 1 Timothy, it starts with, to Timothy, my true child. 2 Timothy, to Timothy, my beloved child. In Titus, 1 Titus, to Titus, my true child. Philemon, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker. And I had to stop there when I was preparing this. I had to. And I had to spend some time just meditating on what that meant. So my first question is, do we love our brothers and sisters here with the same passion as Paul? Do we love our brothers and sisters as a family here with the same passion that Jesus has loved us? Are we helping each other? Are we encouraging each other? The Bible reminds us in John 13, 34, to love one another as he has loved us. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. The love that we should be showing to one another should be obvious for people to see. This isn't a British love. I'll give you an example of a British love. How's your week been? Good. See you next week. No, not right. It's a radical love. John reminds us this is an evident love. People should be able to distinguish you by the love that we share for each other. I've seen some amazing examples of this, and I'll just quickly share a bit about my background. Um, I've shared this before, but my mum is an amazing woman of God. She was part of a new church in Congleton, um, and the church was probably about 40 people at the time. It was quite a new church plant. And um, my dad was coming home from work one night, and his car hit, something made him swerve, we don't know what, and his car hit a tree and killed him straight away. And my mum was left widowed with a two-year-old, that's my brother, and a three-month-old, that's me. And we see examples from this sadness, this tragedy, of a love that should be distinguishable because the next day, as soon as the church heard, four people opened the houses for prayer for a month, praying for my mum and me and my brother. Just amazing. Well, it brings me to tears because this is the love that we should be showing one another. It's a radical love. It's a love that should show change. It should make people go, what is it that they've got? My mum, and this is just amazing, this just shows you the importance young people have. She said that um, she was coming downstairs one day, um, about, probably about a week after, she said, and she came downstairs and opened the curtains. And the youth group, this is people who were 13, had come en masse and were sorting a garden out for her. And you just think, that is radical love. That is a love that John talks about. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples. So are we loving like this? Are we showing each other a love like this? A radical love that people can distinguish you from others? Do we have the same love and passion that Paul is showing in his letters here for one another? 
Are we nurturing? Are we caring? And this is partly why, there's a link here, to why we've launched our community groups that we've really encouraged you to buy into. That what we want to do is to see community groups, groups of people with a common purpose, a common mission together, who are having a radical change in the city and the local area. So we would really encourage you, if you haven't already, to get stuck in. Be a family together who show this radical love that we see in Acts. Get stuck in. When we go back to Galatians, before we can move any further on, it's just really important that we just go back to what we looked at last week before we can continue with what we're learning today. In order for us to properly understand, we just need to look back and see that when we see the beginning of this book, Galatians, something is slightly different. The way he writes the beginning of this letter, slightly different from other ones that he's written. He doesn't begin with his usual prayer for the saints. There's a sense of urgency behind it. And this is born out of his love that I keep talking about, his passion, his caring for the church. We see evidence of this in the introduction, which is split into three parts. Verses 1 and 2, he talks about his ministry. An apostle, he references, which means somebody who's sent on a mission. Part 2, his message, verse 3 and 4. Christ sets you free, his message. And his motive in verse 5, to whom be glory forever and ever. He's saying, it's not about me, Jesus. That's really key. Because Paul here is constructing a case. He's drawing his battle lines ready for what we're going to read today. Whenever you read any book on Paul, you know he wears his hearts on his sleeve. He's to the point, he's direct because he loves the people of God. And we see why he starts his letter slightly different in verse 6, in just the first three words. I am astonished. Now, I'm reading from the ESV, so you might have a a slightly different uh, word than that, but it means the same thing. I am astonished. As previously said, Paul's heart, his longing for his churches, is why the, the emphasis behind these letters. And he's noticed, he's heard back from the church in Galatia, that the church was not the canvas that he'd left it. Something had changed. Something had soiled it, dirtied it. The canvas that he'd originally painted, the gospel message that had been painted, didn't look the same when he'd come away. So what is he astonished about? What has got him such concern? What has made him so shocked? Well, we carry on. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him, Jesus. And the key is in the language used here, deserting. This indicates, the tense of the verb, that it's happening rather than a completed thing. So he's trying to get in there before things go wrong. Again, we see this love for the church. He realises his fellow believers are falling away, so he's quick to jump in and correct them. Can you see his heart? His love, just as Jesus loves us. And when we talk about love, we should be doing the same. Do you know, some of my best friends give me the hardest messages. They tell me the things that pierce sometimes, but I know that they do it because they love me and they want what's right for me and they want to keep me following the Lord. This is what we have from Paul, a warning. Born out of a love. So let's go on to the next part. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Paul had preached the gospel, but false teachings had crept in. 
This isn't a new concept in the early church. We see that this is a constant battle that happens with Paul. He must have been really frustrated. The truth about Jesus had come in, had been declared, had seen people saved, and others would creep in and manipulate and twist the truth that he declared. For example, if we look at the letter to the Corinthian church, he was constantly dealing with false teaching and issues that had crept in. In Thessalonians, we see that he's redirecting, trying to make sure the believers stay on track. But he didn't give up because he loved them. And that's the second point. We're to love with a radical love and not give up. Paul, when you read about his life, he must have at times just gone, what am I doing? Why? Can't they just get it? But he didn't give up because he had a radical love for his church, for his people. And again, as I've said before, the same patterns emerged in Galatia. The gospel's been preached and false teachers had emerged. And we specifically see who those false teachers are. They were called the Judaizers. And who were they? The Judaizers were promoting discourse, a cultural belief that man could be saved through works. You see, in the Old Testament, God had left over 600 commands for, people, for the Israelites on how to live, to practice their faith, to ensure that they lived faithfully, that they were faithful to God. However, the Judaizers had added to these rules. They had taken God's commands and warped them. They painted their own gospel on a canvas. And this wasn't new. If we just turn our Bibles to Mark 7 for me, please. So Mark 7, please. Jesus <laughs> encountered the very same thing. So if you just turn to Mark 7 for me. It's reassuring this, I must say. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of the disciples ate with hands that were defiled and that is unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? This is the exact same problem that Paul encountered that Jesus did too. Judaizers with a pharisaical law mentality had infiltrated the church and begun adding rules and regulations, manipulating a grace faith into a works-based faith. This wasn't the gospel that was originally declared. And this is serious stuff that we need to be aware of, that we need to be constantly on guard against. This is why Paul uses the word astonished. Later in verse 7, Paul refers to those changing the gospel as wanting to distort. And when you read background information into this, the actual phrase that regularly comes out here is perverting the gospel. And that perverting is really negative connotations. Paul here is saying that this is not on. This is serious stuff. So why? Why do people change the gospel? Why did the Judaizers change the true gospel that had been preached? And it comes down to heart. We're just going to go back just to Mark 7, which is a similar encounter that Paul had had with regard to the attitude that people had. And there's a clue in the hearts of these people. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem... 
This was approximately a 100-mile journey. They hadn't come, think about how long that would have taken without cars, it's a few days, they hadn't come to Jesus to learn and understand the message that he was bringing. They'd come intentionally to pick him apart, to criticise him, to try and catch him out. They changed the gospel for personal gain. They changed the gospel to suit their needs, for their own purposes. They haven't come at all with the intention of listening to Jesus. <laughs> They've come to criticise, to manipulate others, to make others feel bad. We're reminded in the New Testament that they made life, that the Pharisees have made it incredibly difficult for people to get to God, incredibly difficult for people to come and have a relationship with God. They prayed on purpose, intentionally, so that people could see them. <laughs> you can learn about the heart. So the question we need to ask ourselves then is, how do we come to Christ? How are we coming to Christ? Are we like the Judaizers who are coming with their own agenda, with their own wants, not prepared to listen and sit at the feet of Jesus and hear what he's got to say, to read your Bible and prepare to be taught? We see now, and this is why we're talking about it, in society and even in the church, how the truth of the gospel is distorted for personal gain. And Paul uses the word, let him be accursed. Again, we can't re-emphasize this enough, how important this is. So we need to be on the lookout. We need to be aware. So what we're going to do now is I've taken, I've had a look through some different things. And we're going to look at some different types of gospels that we might encounter. Ways that we can spot it and then talk a little bit more about it. So the first gospel that we might encounter is a gospel of moralism. And that essentially says, as long as I live a good life, I'll be all right. It has almost similar elements to pharisaical beliefs that places emphasis on the works that you do and how you live your life in order to be saved. How can we identify this? How do we know if somebody's teaching this? Based upon motivation? Often based upon pointing at you and how you live your life. You'll hear a common thread there, you, and its impact on others based on your works. And there are elements of this in the Galatian church. We can see that. This, this, if you stick to these rules, these beliefs, these traditions of the elders, you will be saved. The second gospel that we might encounter is called the gospel of individualism. And this is rife now. My rights, my beliefs, as long as I do what I think is right, it's okay. And this is grounded, in effect, in pride. It's a self-reliance. I don't need Jesus. I can do it my own. Similar to moralism. The individualistic gospel tells you that you are all unique, which we are. So therefore, the gospel can be interpreted differently for each individual. Jesus loves us, so it's all right, we'll be okay. We could argue that this is the, the gospel that was seen in the Corinthian church. When we see Corinthians, it's a free-for-all. Everyone was doing whatever they wanted. Everyone still thought that they were okay. And Paul had to go in with a loving heart and correct them. How might we spot a gospel of individualism? God loves everyone. God loves me. He does. 
It's a slight warping. He doesn't care as long as I'm happy. Issue is, you end up with chaos, as we see well within the Corinthian church. We should be on guard for this, aware of this. The third one, the gospel of prosperity. You might hear about this. The gospel of prosperity is slightly different in that it holds to old covenantal promises and turns them into a right that belongs to you. If you follow Jesus, then you are entitled to wealth. You are entitled to health. Now, don't get me wrong, I believe God blesses. I believe God heals. I've been healed myself. I'd love to share that story with you at some point. But the gospel of prosperity tells you that's all right, you're entitled to that. We see Paul addressing this in his letters to the Thessalonian church. 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 5, We came to you, for we never came to you with words of flattery, as you know, nor for a pretext of greed. He's been really clear here. And later, we work night and day that we might not burden any of you while we proclaim the gospel. We see this a lot. Your entitlement, linked to rights, linked to pride. How might this look? How might you identify prosperity gospel? God wants me to be wealthy. I've seen this regularly. We need to be really aware of this. That if you give this amount, God will treble it. Treble it. Quadruple it if you give X more. How can you tell a gospel of prosperity? How can you tell any of those gospels so far? Gospel of individualism, gospel of moralism. What do they talk about the most? Self, money, the individual, your rights. Another gospel that we might encounter that we need to be aware of, that we need to be taught what it looks like. The lukewarm gospel, stroke consumerism. The lukewarm gospel is weak, it's tepid, which the Bible warns against. It's watered down. It has elements of individualism, moralism, pride. The lukewarm gospel basically says this. Go to church on a Sunday and do whatever you want the rest of the time. As long as you're good for that hour that week, you're okay. It doesn't buy in. And we're not a church that would encourage that. We're not a church who would proclaim that at all. We believe that you should look the same on a Tuesday night when you're shattered after you put the kids to bed as you should on a Sunday. That same gospel heart. We're never going to be perfect in that. Don't get me wrong. I can't stand here and say I'm perfect at all. I'd be a liar. But what we're not is, we're not part-time Christians. We should see that love each and every day, that hunger for the truth each and every day. Some days are harder. Yeah, right, of course they are. They are, I know. But it's all to do with your heart. This is linked to the gospel of consumerism, which I must just point out as well. The gospel of consumerism says, I come to church, I will be fed for an hour, and then I will go home. No, we should be contributing, guys. We should be looking after our friends, looking after one another. Get yourself involved in a community group. Get yourself involved looking after people. Buy into the mission that we've got. Buy into the mission of your church. Not just coming and sitting for an hour. It's a tragedy. It's a waste. And finally... We've got what we would call, it's a bit of a fancy word, this, societal constructivist gospel. I was trying to shorten that down, but I couldn't find any other way. 
Whatever is acceptable at the time this is, effectively, it changes based on what we feel as a society. How does this look? Effectively, you get your scissors, and you copy and paste, you cut bits of the gospel that you like, based on what suits the time at the moment. It takes, essentially, part of the gospel that society likes at the time. And what do you notice about all of these gospels that have said, I'm going to put that out there, those four different types of gospel that the gospel can be warped. Did anybody notice? Perfect. There's not a single mention of Jesus. It comes down to you, what you want. And we know from gospel that you cannot save yourself no matter how good a person you think you are. Jesus paid the sacrifice for you. Jesus has made the way that you can be reconciled to God. Any gospel that doesn't point us to Jesus, any gospel that doesn't put an emphasis on him, that doesn't direct us to him, that doesn't remind us of what he has done, is no gospel at all. It's not a new gospel. False gospels that creep in slowly move our gaze from Jesus and make it about us. It moves from that original faith-based justification to the works-based justification that Paul and Jesus had encountered. We see in Matthew 24 that Jesus was so keen on this, he rebuked the Pharisees for this. So now, let's look at the good bits. What does the real gospel look like? What does the true gospel look like that we should be clinging to, to our last breath? You can't save yourself. Do you know, Jesus came to die for us. He loves us so much that we shall not perish but have everlasting life. He has made the way. And this is the liberating thing about Jesus. This is the liberating thing about Christianity when taught properly. It takes the pressure off. All we have to do is lay down our life and say, Lord, I have messed up. I know I'm a sinner. I know I can't do it on my own. But I thank you for what you have done for me. Thank you, Father. He is truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. He is the ultimate truth. If you're not sure, go back to your Bible, check. What does the Bible tell me? What does the Bible teach me? What does the Holy Spirit say? We're going to talk about that in community groups. I'm not going to go too much into that um, for today because we will go back into that in community groups this week, the Holy Spirit. Also, that the gospel is costly. We cannot afford to be lukewarm Christians. If anyone will come after me, this is Matthew 16, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loves his life for my sake will find it. The true gospel, the true gospel when taught, requires us to put aside our desires, our wants, our plans, and follow him. It's costly. We need to not just be hearers, but doers of the word. Simply sitting in church doesn't mean that you truly understand the gospel. Do you know, when we look back at some of Jesus' closest friends, particularly one, we see evidence of this. Judas spent time with Jesus. He would have seen all the miracles that Jesus did. He would have sat with Jesus. He would have eaten with Jesus. He would have heard the way Jesus spoke, the way Jesus spoke with other people. But we see from Scripture, he didn't truly understand it or have a heart ready for it. (laughs) His greed led him to steal. His own personal agenda led him to betray the Son of God for simply 30 pieces of silver. 
This is a fool's thinking. It's short term. A fool will think what they can get now to satisfy them now. The Corinthian church are prime examples. It's a free-for-all. It's chaos. They did whatever they felt was good for the moment. We see how Jesus spoke to Judas about this in John 13. He was troubled. He was troubled in his spirit, is the words used. He cares. Paul cares about the gospel that we're taking in. We need to be a people who are wise, who are on guard, who are prepared to identify what we're being taught. To be wise, we need to pray, spend time in his word, study the scripture, and know what he's telling us. It's the only way that we won't be swayed by false teaching. We will be sheep who hear his voice. Amen? And there's reassurance in this. There's help within that. We're not just given this and left to go alone. Jesus didn't want you to just admire his wisdom. He wants you to be part of it. That's why he sent the Holy Spirit, to convict us, to lead us, to help us grow in wisdom. That's why we pray. That's why we spend time in our Bibles. Are we doing that? Are we spending time in God's word? Are we making time in our busy schedules to listen to what he's saying? This is something that I've been really challenged with over the summer as I've moved into a new phase of our life. I've been really challenged to spend time with God. With two young kids, I'm not going to lie, it's really difficult. But, I mean, Han's really good. She challenges me. Are we challenging each other? Have we got that love for one another? We need to move away from a short-term consumerist about me outlook and have a long-term outlook like Paul, like Jesus, that's prepared to make sacrifices. Do you know, I'm prepared to say it's not about me. It might be 70 years of my life, but I'm prepared to say it's not about me. I lay down what I want for what you want. I lay down my rights for you. I'm prepared to go to places that I don't want to go for you. I'm prepared to be taught things that I might not like because of my pride, but I'm prepared to do it because I love you. Wise people, we should be working to wisdom, have a long-term outlook. Paul had one. We see that in his rebukes to the church, his love for the church. We see with Jesus, let this cut pass, but he still went through it. His long-term outlook. He was prepared to do it. So I'm going to stop us there. We're going to pray for two things. So um, I'd love if you'd all stand with me, please. If you could all just stand, if you're able to, just stand. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word that you bring us, Lord God. We thank you that we can continually learn from your word. Lord God, we pray for a heart like you have for your bride. Lord God, that Paul has for the church, Lord Jesus. That we would care enough, that we would love one another enough, that it would be obvious to the world, that people would want to say, what is this? What is this that you've got? We want it. We want to be part of it. Lord God, we thank you for the work that the early saints did in spreading the gospel, Lord God, that has influenced us now. Lord God, we, we thank you for the sacrifices that made the long-term outlook that they had. Jesus, we thank you for the long-term outlook that you had in preparing to go to the cross through unbearable suffering for us, that we might know the truth, that we might be reconciled to you, Lord God. We pray now, Lord God, 
Help us to be aware of any false gospels that might creep in. Help us to be aware, Lord God, of any gospel that might be alter our gaze from you to something else. Lord God, we pray for three things, an outpouring of the Holy Spirit to direct us, a close relationship with you, and that we'd be people who are hungry for your words, that we can learn what the true gospel looks like. And Lord God, we thank you for the freedom that there is within hearing these words. Lord God, we thank you that it's not about what we've done because we are never going to make the mark. We thank you that there is forgiveness when we have messed up. There is forgiveness when we've made it about us instead of you. Thank you that there is forgiveness when we haven't loved one another as we should do, when we haven't corrected one another with a loving heart. But Lord God, we thank you that you forgive us, that you provide grace, Lord God, that you love us enough to die for us, Jesus. Heavenly Father, we pray as well for those people who might not know you yet here amongst us. Lord God, that it's never too late. It's never too late for us to turn around and say, do you know what? I can't do it on my own anymore. I can't. Lord God, the Bible reminds us that we declare with our mouths. So Lord God, we pray now, if there's anybody here who doesn't know Jesus, I'm just going to say a prayer. And if you'd like to pray it after me in your head, I do not mind all with your mouth. It does say proclaim, or declare. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the sacrifice that you have made for us. Lord Jesus, that you came and gave your life for us. Lord God, that we, as mere humans, could enter into a relationship, a, f- a friendship with you. Lord God, I'm sorry for the times that I've made it about me. I'm sorry for the times that I've messed up. But Lord God, just like in the parable of the prodigal son, you're waiting for us to return. (laughs) Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord, for forgiving me. I proclaim you Lord of my life. I lay down my rights in service of you. Thank you, Jesus.